On the Empire Podcast this week, the neatest actor in the business, Jeremy Irons, drops by to talk about his three, count them three, upcoming projects while we have the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that doesn't like to get political but is really worried about the sugar tax, mainly because the Coke machine on our floor hasn't increased its prices in 15 years and I don't want it to start now. Keep cans of Coke at 60p. That's what I say. Ugh. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Feels like old times. Because uh, first up, uh, returning to the pod after a short layoff where she had to travel to San Francisco to talk to one of her favourite directors. It's a hard knock life when you're a geek queen. Uh, hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you doing? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, as is one of my favourite directors. He was in good form. Can we say it? Yeah, we can probably say it, can't we? Can we say it? Probably, yeah. It was Andrew Stanton, ah, who I basically stalked around the world when mm. he made John Carter, because I think I interviewed him like four or five different times. Were you on set of John Carter for us? I was on set of John Carter, yeah, repeatedly. Yeah. Re- <laughs> authorised um, or unauthorised? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't like to say. Um, okay. uh, but yeah, he's, he's, he's still in very, very good form, and he's now making Finding Dory, um, about which I'm embargoed from saying anything. So if I had seen, you know, like 20 minutes of footage... <laughs> and find it funny and charming I wouldn't be able to say so do you know <laughs> well, what I mean well <laughs> you crack that code embargo enforcers I just uh, wouldn't as but. your lawyer <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that's, that's the way around embargoes for example if I were to tell you that I'd seen no <laughs> no I can't I can't go there can't. I definitely can't <laughs> I definitely can't go there because uh, people will kill me uh, do you ever get that uh, when you're doing interviews with, with uh, actors and they go oh I'm in a big film coming up and oh I can't tell you anything because there's someone from Marvel or someone from DC outside with a, with a rifle and they're going to kill me yeah. that's not likely is it I mean, you do have a little red spot in your forehead at the moment. And that's I'm... just general stress oh, and okay, I'm eating fine, too much sugar because in the light of the budget with the sugar tax, I've just been cramming it all into my cram hole. So in an, in an attempt to just stock up, I believe that's the way the human body works. I'm, sure. I'm storing the sugar for the next few years. Yeah. And it'll, I believe it uh, transforms into muscle. <laughs> so, I mean, Jason Momoa yes, is rarely to be seen without a yes. bag of sugar. <laughs> He's just mainlining sugar. That's what I love. Um, the laugh you just heard was from our art house guru, um, <laughs> who's a man who's offered to miss this week's podcast in order to talk to one of his favourite directors. And I had to remind him that F.W. Murnau <laughs> has been dead for many years. Oh, come on. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Do you know when I was writing this today on my, um, on my iPhone? Because this is the level of attention I give to the Empire Podcast scripts. Thanks, guys. I write them on the train on the way into the on the way into work in my fifteen minute journey to work. And um it takes as, that you, long. as you can tell. <laughs> it takes just typing. Um when I was when I typed Murnau on my iPhone, it autocorrected it to Murray. So I don't have an art house autocorrect. Um, Phil, do you, <laughs> presumably your your autocorrect. If you're typing on your phone, it must now recognise Kislavsky. It must now recognise Kiriostami because these are the, the names you just <laughs> you just throw out. Kiriostami. <laughs> um, no, Chris, it doesn't. No, yeah, if it he doesn't. tries to write man, it automatically adds an extra n. <laughs> it's not art house enough for Phil. Well, it's close. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, welcome both. Uh, it's a try pleasure. That now. Hold it's on. A, oh yeah, okay. Live right. texting. <laughs> does it get, does it get Carry any, on. I'll text you. <laughs> does it get any more exciting than this? What happens if you type her? Does it finish it with sog? <laughs> no. No. Okay. No. All right. No, there you go. Suspense is killing me there. <laughs> uh, all right, we have a question that's been sent in uh, via Twitter by at Click My Shutter. That's a great name. 
Ooh. What a great name. Uh, click my shutter. Photographer for beat makers on SoundCloud. Wow. Check out my int- photographs on Instagram. There you go. Click my shutter. Um, it's a question I think we've had a variation of in the podcast. Uh, but I like the way it's been phrased. Mm-hmm. Has any director made a better five films in a row than Nolan? Batman Begins. Prestige. Dark Knight. Inception. Dark Knight Rises. Interestingly, leaving off um, the, the exciting at the other end, Interstellar and Insomnia. Mm-hmm. Before those, those movies, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, Batman Begins, Prestige, Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, at least three of those got five stars in Empire. Yeah. Uh, I Helen mean, does what, one of them really massively... Oh. Didn't, yeah, you know, it's Dark Knight Rises. Like, I just have very, very big problems with. But, uh, but you know, I, I do love the Prestige and um, Batman Begins. So you were referring, of course, to McTiernan's run, a run of three great movies in a row, which we've discussed before. Did we discuss it in the podcast? Before? Yeah, we discussed yeah. it in the podcast yeah. before. Two hundred three episodes in. I'm, 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 I don't have. <laughs> I don't. I don't keep track of everything we've discussed. Yeah. Sadly, so apologies if we've gone over this before. Um, Carpenter, we have discussed as well. He had a run of five, which is pretty astonishing. Uh, it mm. went from. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing. I would put any of those up against Dark Knight Rises, and they would smash it. Hey. They would. I'm sorry. They just would. Um, well, of course, the thing about that is... Yeah. Um, so he goes, Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, uh, The Thing. Then he hits Christine, which I love as well. Mm-hmm. But... In between there as well, he made two TV movies: "Someone's Watching Me" and Elvis. Yeah, but we're not to, we're not counting TV. That just gets too confusing. But those are even better than the uh, theatrical <laughs> movies. That oh, he well, made. in that case, yeah, I think um, that, I think that run is pretty hard to beat. I think that that's pretty good. I mean, uh, Billy Wilder had a pretty a couple of very very good runs: uh, "Sunset Boulevard," "Ace in the Hole," "Stalag 17," "Sabrina," and "The Seven Year Itch," mm-hmm. and also "Love in the Afternoon," "Witness for the Prosecution," "Some Like It Hot," "The Apartment," and "One Two Three, which admittedly is the weakest of those five. Mm-hmm. Um, Hitchcock also did it at least twice. There are a number of filmmakers that just haven't made any bad films. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson springs to mind. Very true. Very true indeed. Um, I guess I think the answer to this is Kubrick, because up until. Eyes Wide Shut, which has its detractors. Mm-hmm. He really didn't make anything other than great films right from the killers onwards. I don't think. You may disagree. That's fair. That's fair. I, I, think, I, think, I think they were all some, great films. There's some Barry Lyndon detractors out there. Not many, though. I mean. Fewer and fewer every year. Mm. Yeah. Gary, a- Gary Lyndon hates it. <laughs> <laughs> He's furious. Gary Lyndon. <laughs> Gary Lyndon, Because yeah. he, he was a toss-up. He wanted to make a Lyndon movie, but he wasn't sure if he was going to make a yeah. movie about Barry or Gary. Yeah, Gary Lyndon. He's a Spears. painter and decorator who lives in Luton. <laughs> Luton a much, much more... What, naturally what if lit. there is one, Chris? There, there is bound to be one. All right. Okay. We've had live texting, now we're having live Googling. <laughs> no, no. Gary Lyndon. <laughs> I thought you were Googling Hitchcock. No, no. I know who Hitchcock I, I is. I can tell you about Hitchcock if you want. Please tell me Okay, so uh, one run was Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds and Marnie. Yes. Which is pretty freaking cool. That's even better than Nolan. Uh, s- possibly slight, I mean, slightly more arguable. Strangers on a Train, I Confess, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief mm-hmm. was another run of his. Um, he just doesn't He doesn't make a lot of duds. So we need a McTiernan's run uh, name for this. Are we going to call it right. Hitchcock's Streak? <laughs> or if he had six, it could be Hitchcock's Half Dozen. <laughs> Hmm. Okay. Just, you know, it's yeah, not bad. sure. Yeah, it's not bad. What about Terence Malick's run from okay. Badlands? Yeah, but it sort of ends in the Tree of Life. 
I, uh, mm. I like the tree of life. Hang on, from uh, Badlands, that's more than five. Badlands, Days of Heaven, yeah. the, thin, mm-hmm. uh, the Thin Red Line, yeah. and The New World. Yeah. You I only argue, made four I'd, films in. I'd argue it ended in, at The New World. Um, I like ooh, The New World very much. Thin Red Line. Oh, hello. Oh. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Sorry, I, 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 really why would you gone. say that? Why would you say that? <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's not like he's going to... Oh, a famous, bird. Famously <laughs> reclusive Terence Malick. Oh, my God. <laughs> gonna, gonna, Grass is growing all around the studio right now. It's waving gently oh. in the wind. He's not going to burst in through the window and go, how dare you say that about... But it would be, we'd be quite welcome at That'd be amazing. Yeah, if Terence Malick suddenly our, popped our, up in the podcast. Our best friends to interview him. How are you dissing a thin red line? That's wrong. I'm, I like a lot of the Thin Red Line. Objectively but, wrong. You know, it's not objectively it is, wrong. It, objectively it wrong. It's not objectively wrong. It has an awful lot of leaves blowing in the Actually, wind. Actually, a lot of people do find it quite boring. They are wrong. But I agree. Yeah. They're wrong. See, Spielberg is an interesting one here because mm. Spielberg, I'm not sure he ever did the great run. No, he didn't. He because, did four great ones in a row, but yeah, not five. So he goes, Sugarland Express, uh, you know, Jewel, obviously. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Jaws, Close Encounters. Red the Lost Ark, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. You go, oh, this is fantastic. Indiana Jones and Temple of the New. But right in the middle of that 1941. is 1941. Yeah. So you're going, OK, that's not great. Then he goes, Colour Purple, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, um, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. Again, five fantastic films, unfortunately, in the middle of those, always, and Hook. So mm. He know, does that. I think he's like, this is so good. What I'm on at the moment, I've got to make other people feel not so bad. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a really terrible film. It's never really terrible. 1941 his, is pretty bad. It's, it's Hook not, is pretty terrible. No, it's not that bad. And I know people who like love Hook. Um, right, name some. <laughs> Bob. I've got, uh, I've got. I've got one. I've got okay. one. I've got one. This is like the scene in Jaws, isn't it? I got that beat. Um, Zemeckis. Okay. Uh, so even if you discount I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a, a, a slight trifle, but good for Beatlemaniacs, Used Cars is very, very good, 1980. Then he goes Romancing the Stone, 84. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future, 85. Hoover and Roger Rabbit, 88. Straight into the uh, Back to the Future sequels, 1989, 1990. Death Becomes Her is very good, although it wouldn't be on everyone's list, I know. But, it, it, you know, a solid Forrest Gump, again, Contact. Uh, the, the first film that he made, I think, that could... Can, Reliably be called chunky is probably the Polar Express in two thousand and four. Mm. Um, I think Death Becomes a probably disqualified. I like that. Life. I like that film. I like the film a lot. A lot. What about? I'm going to bash this out. Okay. Palin Pressburger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Canterbury yes. Tale, nineteen forty four. Uh-huh. I know where I'm going. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Nineteen forty five. A Matter of Life and Death, forty six. Black Narcissus, forty seven, and The Red Shoes, forty eight. Okay, that's pretty. That's pretty. Pretty. I like Soderbergh's run from uh, Out of Sight, The uh-huh. Limey, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and Ocean's Eleven. That's, you know, a that's five, five pretty, pretty that's top pretty films great. in a row. That's a fantastic run. Um, or Woody Allen. Okay. He made 17 good films in one year. <laughs> um, Is this the early funny ones? Or? Yeah, I would say Bananas. Uh-huh. Um, everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But We're Afraid to Ask. Mm-hmm. Sleeper. Love mm-hmm. and Death. Annie Hall. Interiors. Mm-hmm. Very good, but... Uh, well, you've got to five Manhattan. Already. Yeah. Stardust Memories. Uh, and then Midsummer Night Sex Comedy. And then Zelig Broad. Broadway, Danny Rose, Purple Rose of Cairo, Hannah and her sisters, and Radio Days. Okay, so that's two fives actually. That's two decent Definitely. fives. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. James Cameron. Mm-hmm. James Dyer isn't here, so we better like front <laughs> up for him. The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator Two, and True Lies. Oh, boom! Yeah, and then he follows those up with Titanic and Avatar, the two biggest films of all time. So you're kind of yeah, he's that's that's a pretty good run. Um, 
I would say. I mean, for me, uh, the Abyss is not quite as good as the other ones that surround up. But it's still better than yeah, Dark Knight Rises. It, oh, the Dark Knight Rises has a lot of good things going for it, Helen. It does. It genuinely does. It has a scene set at Stansted Airport, which <laughs> is in Gotham. We know that much. Uh, no, Anne Hathaway's great in it. Anne Hathaway is good. Uh, that that bit with the plane hanging upside down in midair that was that was quite cool. Yeah. I like the bit where the Batman returns to action and the, the policeman goes, you're going to see something now, son, and nothing which, much happens. Which bit when Batman returns to action? Because there were like six. No. Oh, so, you're so cynical. <laughs> you're so cynical. Francis and Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did. Is this getting boring yet? No, but no, I, that's I, a good I'm enjoying this. Call. I'm enjoying this. Well, the, listeners yeah. are the conversation, right the Godfather Part 2, Apocalypse Now. Uh-huh. I that's don't know. Four. What did he do next? Who can tell me what he did next? He did, did, didn't he do either One from the Heart or Cotton Club next? I think it was One from the Heart. Mm. Yeah. So it's sort of. So he's Spielberg it. Has yeah. he Spielberg it? A little bit. Uh, David Cronenberg. Yeah. Should we go through David Cronenberg? Yeah, you suggested Cronenberg earlier, Phil. Let's go through David Cronenberg. Uh, so, Rabid, The Brood, Shivers, his early schlocky stuff, uh-huh. right? And then he goes into Scanners, 81. <laughs> like Scanners isn't his early schlocky stuff. He goes Scanners, The Dead Zone. <laughs> you okay? Fine. Helen's head just exploded. It's uh, <laughs> really. Are you all right? Scanners, the Dead Zone, Videodrome, The Fly, Dead Ringers, and then it goes into all around general weirdness with mm. Naked Lunch and stuff. But yeah. I'm not sure they match up to Powell and Pressburger, but you know. They don't. What was the question? <laughs> was it the best? We're trying to decide who's the best. Has any director made a better five films in a row than Chris Nolan? Yes. Yes. The answer. Definitely yes to the question. Yes. Yes, Kubrick. Yes. yes. Carpenter. Yes, Palin yes, Pressburger. Hitch- Hitchcock. Yes, Palin Pressburger. Yeah. Yes. I'm yes, going to add... Yes, Cameron. I'm going to add... Yes, Brian Levant, who... Um, let me just see. I'm going to add... Yeah. I'm going to prove this. Kira Kurosawa. I mean... That's kind yeah. of my job. That is your job. That is I'm literally your it. job. I'm not even going to name any films. I'm just going to say <laughs> his name <laughs> and general, leave it In general, Akira Kurosawa. Uh, he did do The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Steep Well, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, High and Low, Five in a Row, and The Red wow. Beard. Yeah, those are all that's classics. Pretty damned amazing. Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna get off this in a second, but I'm gonna give you the definitive answer, which is Brian Levant, who in 1991 made Problem Child two. He followed it up the next year with Beethoven. Okay, not to be outdone by himself, he didn't then did out outdid himself with the Flintstones in 1994. Not content with that, he made Jingle All the Way just two years later. Then took a break because even God has to rest sometimes. And came back four years later with the Flintstones in Fever Rock Vegas. Then Snow Dogs, and then Are We There Yet in 2005. I mean, that is unparalleled, I think. Grand total of five stars in that little lot. Amazing stuff. Brian Levant, everybody. Uh, There we go. And there's tons of people we could talk about uh, endlessly, but uh, the answer, I think we've answered it. Yes. (laughs) Well done. Should we have some movie news? Sure. Let's Go talk on. about some movie news, because we've only got one guest this week. Uh, it's a good guest. But let's talk about movie news. Why don't we start with the casting hmm. of Han Solo? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Do that. So this young Han Solo movie is still happening, Phil. Uh, tell us more about Correct. it. Correct. Well, um, it's happening. Oh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Yes. So, well, well, so far. So far. Because this will be their fifth film. Am I right? Oh. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yeah. Lego Movie. 21 Jump Street 22 Jump Street not saying that's a better run than Batman Begins Prestige <laughs> uh, Dark Knight Inception and Dark Knight Rises but certainly in their 
There was right? in your milieu. It's certainly <laughs> Phil. Can we get you to do all foreign yes, words? Yes, milieu. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, <laughs> the mise en scène. Um, that's that, that's very very good. That's a very good run of of, uh, of comedie. Comedie, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. So okay. if they if uh, if they knock it out of the park with this Han Solo movie. That'd be good. Let's hope they do. Fantastic. Yeah. So well, let's they, wait till they've made at? five films yeah. before we add them to the list. Uh, no. So who are they looking at? They are looking at Hail Caesar's Alden Ehrenreich. Okay. Very, very good. Stand out in that good. film. Yeah. Would that um, were so simple? Would that it were so simple? It's complicated. <laughs> Jack Rayner from Transformers. Yes. And, and what, what Richard, did, Richard did. Which was great. Which was absolutely great. Uh, and Taron Egerton. Is that correct? <laughs> Taron Edgerton. Yes. Taron Edgerton. Of Kingsman fame and yes. most recently, or upcoming, Eddie the Eagle. Where's Jack Rayner from? Ireland. Uh, Ireland. So we've got one Brit, one Irishman, and an American. Yeah. Got a Welshman. Walk into a bar. Welshman and Irishman and... Uh, Walk into yeah. a bar and shoot Greedo. <laughs> First. First. Uh, and this means that off the list, because they had a short list of eight, right? Yeah. Um, is Dave Franco. Right. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Miles Teller. Okay. He's probably yeah. done himself minimal favours in the last couple of years with some of his post extracurricular comments. <laughs> was he rushing um, or was he dragging? Ansel Elgort, Logan Lerman, and Scott Eastwood. And to my mind, they picked the right three. What do you think? Um, I mean, Scott Eastwood is definitely the handsomest and probably the tallest of the bunch. It seems I don't know. Jack Rayner is pretty handsome. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. As why am I getting involved in this discussion? Why again? are you getting? Why, and, yeah. and I, 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 I why do pro- I have pictures? I promise you that Scott Eastwood is better looking than Jack, Jack Rayner. Who would you rather swipe up on? Swipe left, swipe right. Where do you want? Where do you, where do you <laughs> swipe? Know. Where do you swipe on Scott Eastwood? Uh, this is a I question mean, that no, is... he's he's far too good looking to swipe anywhere. But um, uh, I don't know. I I feel like these guys that they've got are, with the exception maybe of Rayner, they're very short. Does that matter? <laughs> <laughs> like I genuinely this is a genuine question I know that you're not going to get an exact match for Harrison Ford I get that I understand it but they're like a good few inches shorter it's the movie it's the magic of movies though is Else, it? surely yeah. they use like boxes and yellow pages <laughs> give people a sense of you know height yeah, I don't I mean I'm not saying that that matters a lot things they can do uh, Alden Ehrenreich was was Utterly hilarious in Hail Caesar, and if you haven't seen him in that yet, I hugely recommend it. Um, Edgerton has just all the charm in Eddie the Eagle. He's he's absolutely just lovely in that, and, and really really winning. And I think mm-hmm. that's important as well. Um, and he does have edge. We've seen a little bit of that in in Kingsman as well, so we can kind of bring that to to for, to to Han Solo if, if called upon to do so. Um, and Jack Rayner, I mean, it'd be great to get to see him get another chance at, at the big big huge scale movies after the very very disappointing for everybody uh, Transformers 4 so um, mm. I wonder if this means that his character um, Irish boyfriend will not be returning for Transformers <laughs> 5 6 or 7 uh, I've just checked her heights yeah uh, <laughs> by kidnapping them and uh, <laughs> running a tape measure over them I, so Alden Ehrenreich is 5'8 yeah. So he's five inches shorter than Harrison Ford, who's mm-hmm. officially six one. Yeah. Uh, Jack Rayner is six inches on the dot. Sure, six feet. And <laughs> six inches. <laughs> that <laughs> might be a problem. <laughs> can't, can't, can't reach the console. You'd what save money on sets, though, wouldn't you? No, oh, it's tiny. Well, you, Derek uh, Zoolander Academy of <laughs> Space Cowboys. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> he's a tiny, tiny fellow. <laughs> Be careful with the clapperboard, lads. You don't want to quash, quash me. <laughs> Jesus. 
<laughs> I'm Han Solo and I'll bite your ankles, you bastard. Come here. Right. Uh, How tall's the other one? Well, I think we've smoothed over that one. Six feet. He's six feet. You're right. <laughs> What else happened this week? Did I, did I tell you I constructed Spinal Tap Stonehenge? <laughs> <laughs> you know us men, Helen. When it comes to <laughs> when it comes to feet and inches, <laughs> we sometimes always um, the yeah yeah. Mm. So he's six feet on That's the dot. Right. Yes, might be six inches. We don't know. Um, <laughs> Darren Edgerton. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. And Taron Edgerton is 5'11". Okay. Whether that's feet ninjas, I don't know. Is he? Okay. That's, that's yeah. what it says. All right. That's what it says. Sure. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to call the internet I, a liar. I've met him. He's, he's taller than me and is I'm 6'3". Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm 5'9". I'm, I'm, Tom, I'm Tom Cruise height. In me stocking soles. Uh, so, yeah, but let's not get too caught up on Yeah, no, I'm not. I just, you know, it's, it, it just struck me that there might be a bit of a difference there. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, we've been fairly sceptical about this project from mm-hmm. the off going, you can't, you cannot find an actor who will fill Harrison Ford's shoes. Um, but I actually quite like this final three. I think that um, my personal pick from the three mm-hmm. uh, would be Jack Rayner. Mm. How come? Uh, I think he has the voice. I think he has the height, the physicality. I like Taron Edgerton a lot, but I'm not sure that he has the voice necessarily to pull it off. Mm-hmm. That he can, you know. But then it depends if they if you know if they don't want someone to do a Harrison Ford impression, then it's uh, it's it's okay, isn't it? But uh, this will probably also come down to scheduling, won't it? Because Kingsman Two is about to go. Yeah. So if that starts, say April May and goes on to August, will that run over their plans? Could do. I don't know, but uh, yeah, this is. I think this a. It's a good. It's a good list of uh, fine actors, and uh, you know, there is going to be a young Han Solo, and let's just hope it's the best uh, actor possible. Amen to that. Mm. There is not going to be a young Indiana Jones at this point. At this point, Phil, you have really worked on your segueing skills. Yeah, was, that was impressive, wasn't um, it? Good, I, wasn't it? Yeah, that course we sent you on. Segways for beginners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Segway one on one. You actually do it while segwaying. Yeah, yeah run by Kevin James. <laughs> so, are you surprised by the news this week that uh, Steven Spielberg is going to make Indiana Jones four with? Harrison <laughs> <Bush>? <laughs> Did that come as a surprise to you? So long after the third. So film. long after the third film. <laughs> yeah, it's been what? Uh, by the time it comes out, July 19, 2019, it'll be. Whoa! We thought it was the last Crusade, right? Thirty. That can't be right. Yeah. It will be. 30 years since The Last Crusade. Incredible. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, shall we, just for the sake of one more time, just pretend that what? we don't know that it's the fourth Indiana Jones movie and just... Should we do that? Just, yeah. Because okay. everyone's been doing it this week on the on the twits. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's been 30 years since they made the last Indiana Jones film. I mean, I remember there was that fan fiction thing that came out a few years ago uh, where you had a guy who looks a lot like Harrison Ford. Not right? canon. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, are you surprised? I am a bit. Uh, no, not really, because um, they've never taken it off the table, have they? They've no. never said they wouldn't do it. Um, and clearly, I think you know, there's a lot of love between Spielberg and Ford, and you know, they clearly have a lot of affection for the character, for the world. And I think it's a matter of just finding the right 
story now? There's something sort of vaguely meta happening here. If you consider Mm. that the last Indiana Jones film, The Last Crusade, has this whole riff on eternal life and wanting something to go on forever. (laughs) Mm. And then, yeah, here they are trying to make it. And what they'd really like to do is take a sip from the chalice and, uh, you know, return Harrison Ford to a a slightly more sort of nimble... I've always wondered about this because at the end of uh, Last Crusade, he does drink from the, the holy cup. Yeah. Uh, so you would that would surely bestow him with um, I was wondering, long life. Not my, my thought on that has always been that maybe you need intention. So you only get eternal life if you intend that it will give you eternal life. If you're just testing the cup, then you're just testing the cup. But it doesn't grant eternal life. Because as we know, you have to in Last Crusade, they yeah. say that the, the other knight who leaves the cave... True. Uh, you have to stay in the cave together. Very old age. Mm. He dies. Of, so they, they, he does die. So there's a you know Indiana Jones could have that flowing through his system. Um, of course, he gives it to his dad as well, who mm. then, as we know, <laughs> dies. Died. Yeah. So that didn't work. <laughs> Worked long, short term, but not long term. Sure. Yeah. Got to speculate to accumulate. Okay. <laughs> um, well, when are they going to film it? Wednesday. I think, I think that's when they're starting. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't think. I, you know, they haven't. They've, they've they've said all along that if there was to be a fifth Indiana, Indiana Jones film, that it would be with Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg. And so this isn't a surprise to me. No, and they've been talking about it since um, Lucasfilm went to Disney. Um, Kathleen Kennedy, obviously, you know, long history with the franchise, so it does mm. make a lot of sense that mm. you know she'd be looking at ways to bring it back. But also, she doesn't generally do stuff without a story behind it. So. Um, which we should keep in mind for young Harrison Ford as well, or young Han Solo as well, which <laughs> I tend not to. But of course, it will be good, I'm sure. Yeah. It, it, the release date is July 19th, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way off, isn't it? Well, you know, everyone's pretty busy. Everyone's got stuff doing. You know, Spielberg's <laughs> about to do Ready Player One. That's going to yeah. take him... Yeah. Well, given how fast he works in these big budget things, that'll take him up until Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know. He's he's obviously got BFG coming out this year, and then Ready Player One. Has he announced what he's doing after that, or is he going straight into this? He's got a few things on his to do list, but I'm not sure. Yeah, they may. They'll always move around. Yeah, Harrison mm. Ford's obviously going to do uh, Blade Runner two. You know, Harrison Ford's almost doing this victory lap, isn't he? Of, yeah. Like revisiting his great roles and then <laughs> <laughs> killing them. Um, <gasps> Maybe spoiler. we'll finally get that Working Girl sequel I've always wanted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A lot of people on the internet uh, were quite perplexed by this announcement, though. They were basically going, oh, there was lots of very easy, oh my God, this man is old. How can he possibly play this character? Uh, kind of thing. Despite the fact that he has just played <laughs> Han Solo and did a perfectly good job and will soon be playing Rick Deckard and presumably will do a good job there as well. Um, I have no problems with Harrison Ford's mm. age. I have no problems with... I love, and I've said this podcast many times. I love the idea of exploring our icons and our heroes in their in their dotage, and uh, and why I don't think. And he's not in his dotage yet. I don't think so. Yeah, he'll um, be whip cracking away, and uh, he's probably still in better shape than any of us. Let's be honest. He is in better so, shape than any you know. of us. Yeah, except for Phil, who has you know he's just like a machine. He is like a machine, and and he's shaved off his beard, ladies, so he now looks a lot younger. Mm. <laughs> like about twelve, but you know. <laughs> um. What am I going to say to that? I am a machine, Chris. That's correct. I'm a machine Uh, made of bits of old movies (laughs) and subtitles. Like a shit smash robot. I've got some news. Oh, okay. okay. It sort of pertains to what we were discussing earlier because there's a civil war at the heart (gasps) of the filmmaking community. On the one hand, um, Team Cab, Uh Team team Cam, uh, James Cameron and Christopher Nolan. Uh, On the other side, you've got people like 
J.J. Abrams and Peter Jackson for two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, the issue is whether you can have day and date releases on home cinema screens. Uh, the idea that Sean Parker, he of X of Facebook um, and the social network, played by Justin Timberlake fame, um, has mooted is that you can buy for a large amount of money the right to see a film on a big screen at home on the same day it's released in cinemas. Any film, not just... <clears throat> with all due respect to Artificial Eye, who I love dearly, Artificial Eye type movies, but the big blockbusters as well. Yeah. Um, so Christopher Nolan has rallied to James Cameron's side to say that this is a ridiculous idea and it shouldn't happen. And by the way, I did five films that were better than your five films. Um, <laughs> and um, little little callback there. Um, and to anyone that's still awake. And uh, and yeah, it's just an interesting one that, that this this seems to be you know Hollywood again trying to find new distribution models that work financially um, but also keep the creative uh, the creative sort of heartbeat of the industry happy as well yeah Um, difficult to do that with people like Christopher Nolan and James Cameron who spend so long slaving over scale enormous scale projects yeah and innovation and visuals I mean that's true. I I am I'm very torn on this one because on one hand you need to have a viable model that works for the industry and anything that helps them do that is a good thing. On the other hand, you know, there's something special about going to the cinema and that shouldn't be lost. Um I mean, you know, Christopher Nolan's also a, a sort of digital refusenik um and and you know, plays down his his massive use of visual effects and so, you know, you can't always take him seriously when he says he's refusing technology when he's also very much benefiting from it I think um, I don't think he pretends he makes these films by candlelight mm. uh, he, he does a little bit he talks a lot about stuffing camera and not anyway this is a whole that's a whole other visual effects mm. issue but um, but yeah it's I, I am torn on this and it'll, it'll be interesting to see if this actually does go ahead and if, if so to what extent studios actually allow it you know allow their films to be to be shown this way or to be um released this way. This is the Sean Parker initiative, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Justin Timberlake, obviously. Justin Timberlake's uh, initiative. Yes. He's, played, he's played it in real life by Justin Timberlake, isn't he? Uh, is that it? is right, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. The real Sean Parker retired ages ago. He's <laughs> on a beach in 20%. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know what people, what, how much money people would spend on seeing a film at home on a big TV instead of going to see it at the cinema. They were suggesting, what was it, $45 or something? Yeah, was something in that, quite, in that ballpark. Yeah. That's a lot of money. But that that does kind of depend on you having several friends over. At that point, it becomes worthwhile. I guess. Yeah, and of course, you know, and for a lot of people, the cost of going to films these days involves transport and maybe a babysitter if you have kids. And if you don't have kids, what the hell are you doing hiring a babysitter? That's just weird, man. Um, so, and then popcorn, yeah, a hot dog. And if you go into an IMAX movie, sort of it stuff. can easily it's it's approaching twenty dollars a ticket anyway. I think yeah. in parts of the US, so you know, it's not too far off. And if you're in London. My God. Oh, it's already... I mean, you're yeah. talking 50 quid easily. Easy. Easy. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a purist and I like to watch films in the cinema, but I also don't like to have people talking. So, ideally, if there was no one else in the cinema, that'd be all right. Mm. So, maybe a situation where, like, my like my front room... Oh, hang on. Yes. So, this thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I, I genuinely think, actually, what cinemas could do to keep numbers up is maybe police cinemas better and make sure that they're a more pleasant place to go. I think that the cinemas that are doing really, really well right now seem to be the ones that are bent on making it a more pleasant experience. The cinemas that have comfier seats and better food and all this kind of stuff and it feels like a treat to go there. Um, You know, obviously the the Alamo Draft House is a a particularly extreme example but their absolute intolerance for mobile phone use, for example, is perhaps something that maybe should be more widely adopted. Um, So, I don't know, maybe maybe there's, there's other ways... That we should be exploring as well. Mm. 
Um, there is other news. Uh, I've got a couple of quick ones first. Um, Patrick Warburton, uh, aka The Tick, I think he will always be The Tick to you and me, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, he is going to be voicing Lemony Snicket. Um, in uh, a new adaptation for the small screen of a series of unfortunate events, um, which are a great, twisted, weird little series of novels for kids, and they're they're really really good fun. Um, you may remember the film, obviously, with uh, Jim Carrey as kind Olaf, the the villain of the piece. Uh, he's being replaced by Neil Patrick Harris, which I think is actually quite inspired casting. Um, and Barry Sonnenfeld is directing and working as one of the producers on this one, so uh, it, it all sounds quite promising. I'm really looking forward to that actually Barry Sonnefeld feels like the director it should have had first time around I think that's fair and which is you know no disrespect to Brad Silberling but yeah Sonnefeld's sensibilities just feel more suited to Lemony Snicket I love the books absolutely love the books but I do wonder because Barry Sonnefeld's one of those people who had a very good run as a director and maybe not five I don't think we can talk about the Sonnefeld five but he's really gone off the boil recently and I just hope that maybe he can yeah. get back his mojo for this. Very much so. Uh, speaking of getting their mojo back, it's not as good a segue as Phil's. Mm. Um, no. But there are That's reports, and this, this, will, this will only appeal to a very small demographic of our listeners, but there are reports of a possible third Princess Diary film. This is oh, genuinely huge for a certain group of people. Anne Hathaway, of course, on our very own podcast, yeah. said that she was open to the idea. And she's now talked to Gary Marshall, and they have both said that they're open to the idea. Now, obviously, she is, you know, expecting at the moment, uh, as in expecting a child, not just generally expecting things, um, and uh, and probably will have to, you know, give birth and, you know, have a little bit of downtime before they start on this. But apparently that is now a very real possibility. Um, uh, Marshall said, we have to wait until she has the baby and then I think we're going to do it. So, um, so yeah, that is kind of exciting. Um, presumably at this point, Mia will be married off perhaps to Chris Pine that was certainly the way it was going in the last film and um, and we'll be facing some new you know succession crisis I don't know should be fun it's going back to revisiting beloved characters <laughs> that's uh, it later in their lives uh, why not why not indeed you see that um, this thing where Mark Miller uh, on Twitter the other week uh, he has a new comic book out coming out called Empress, and he uh, he is he said that the actress that will play Empress in the big screen adaptation um, has already signed on, and he tweeted a picture of uh, this actress in disguise and uh, holding up a, a, a piece of paper saying, "I am playing Empress in the big screen version," and they'll reveal it officially in like April twenty second or April eighth, something like that. And everyone was basically going, "That's Anne Hathaway." It's clearly Anne Hathaway. It's just Anne Hathaway wearing a pair of glasses. So, you know, it'd be very interesting to see if she does that as well. So you think she's gone from princess straight up to empress? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So that's intriguing. Um, and I want to mention as well the this news that the Cannonball Run, the <laughs> 1981 all-star, and I'm using inverted quotes, I'm using air quotes there, uh, all-star car chase movie uh, starring Burt Reynolds, Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, Adrian Barbo. Yeah, I'm literally reading off a page here. Dean Martin, Jackie Chan, Sammy Davis Jr., Dom DeLuise, um, Ramshackle comedy. That's quite, pretty quite all-star. Fun. It's, yeah, I guess. Come on, what more do you need? Some actual stars. Um, no, I'm kidding. Burt Reynolds is awesome. Roger Moore is awesome. Jackie Chan's awesome. Dean Thank Martin. You. Actually, they are all awesome. Thank you. Um, but it's not a very good film. No. And so Warner Brothers are uh, have announced this week a, a reboot called Cannonball. And they've got uh, Get Hard director Eaton Cohen on board to 
do what I'm guessing would be a bang-up job. Okay, then. Let's hope. So Here's hoping. What do we, what do we think of that? I mean, I, have, I think people have a lot of affection for the first one, actually. It's not a good film, but it is a... F- you know, doesn't sound good. It's a film. That, it's a film that people watched on a Sunday afternoon when they were six, and it has therefore remained in their hearts ever since. It hasn't remained in mine. Maybe not yours, but other. I, I genuinely, I have a group of friends. They're called the Freaks. Hi guys, and they <laughs> do they listen? Love the Cannibal Run. Wow. So well, there you go. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's made their day. Um, Do we talk about the crow? Let's talk about the crow. Mm. Uh, so, breaking news overnight that um, Corin Hardy, who's been attached to the crow remake, the crow remake, which has just been dogged by bad luck all the way through, uh, leading some to speculate that the, project, the project may be cursed. Uh, Corin Hardy, who's been attached to this director for a long, long time, has left the project uh, stories today in the likes of Deadline. Uh, intimating that his departure from the project may not have been his choice. Uh, that basically Relativity uh, Media, the company that are funding the remake and have been uh, for a long, long time, went uh, essentially went bankrupt last year. Uh, they went into receivership uh, and now they have, as we talked about in the podcast a couple of months ago, they've appointed Dana Brunetti and Kevin Spacey, of all people, mm-hmm. although he's taken more of a backseat, I believe, to run the studio. They've refinanced and are coming out the uh, the doldrums, so to speak. And one of the first acts, apparently, has been to let Corn Hardy go from this remake of The Crow, a movie to which for which he, I think, he was incredibly well suited. Anyone saw The Hallow, anyone's watched any of his, his work over the years as a music video director, uh, would know he has a very, very gothic, very dark sensibility. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very it's a uh, bit of a dispiriting move to be honest and he talked about it on the live podcast last year and he, did, he showed yeah. us pictures of himself dressed up as the crow he did yeah um, years before so he just seemed like a, a perfect fit for this so it's a bit of a yeah. bit of a blow all especially around. as he got so close I mean you know, the point where they had built they were in pre-production yeah. about two year ago, a year ago maybe two years ago they were actually in pre-production on this movie they had offices built in Wales they had people cast they were scouting for locations they were ready to go then the uh, the rug got pulled out from underneath their feet and now it, I'm not even sure what's <laughs> happening because the, 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 the waters are getting muddier all the time so Edward R. Pressman the the producer who's been with the, pro, the Crow for a while trying, trying to get it remade is now trying to file, apparently, a suit against Relativity to try and take the project away from them. And if that happens, I don't know whether Karen Hardy goes with it or whether they get a new director. Mm. Or, But, you know, watch this space because yeah. it's, it's certainly very interesting. But but from a personal point of view, uh, I'm very disappointed by this because I think Karen's a lovely guy and, I've, and it would have made a, uh, a great director for The Crow. Yeah. yeah. Interesting... Uh it's an interesting profile on Donna Brunetti in Vanity Fair a couple of months ago, which is worth checking out. Yeah. Not a universally beloved figure, I would have said, in Hollywood. No, but a very smart and a very astute one as well. Um, so, well, we'll see what happens yeah. with this. And indeed with relativity. Okay, we done for any movie news? I, I think, think we so, are. Yeah. I think we are. Uh, let's meet this week's guest. Uh, he is an amazing... Oscar-winning actor. He is uh, actually one Grammy away from becoming one of the few people to be an EGOT. Ooh, start recording some spoken word albums. There. I know, I meant to say that to him. Egot, in case you don't know, is someone who's won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Yes. So. 12 people in history, I believe. Something like that. I think four people have 16 if you count honorary. Sure. 
awards as well. Um, anyway, he's very busy right now with three movies uh, coming out over the next few weeks. Uh, today, you can see him as the architect, the literal architect of the high rise in Ben Wheatley's High Rise. Uh, next week, he becomes the latest in a long line of British thespians, uh, including, of course, Michael Goff, Michael Caine, and Sean Pertwee. Uh, to play Alfred Pennyworth in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And in a few weeks' time, he plays the esteemed mathematician G.H. Hardy in The Man Who Knew Infinity alongside Dev Patel. And he keeps his clothes nice and pressed as well because his surname is Irons. Uh, He is, of course, Jeremy Irons, and he was in town today. As a matter of fact, uh, I went along to speak to him earlier on. Enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the great Jeremy Irons. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Good morning. Good morning to you. Jeremy Irons' films are a bit like buses at the moment. You wait ages for one and then three turn up at once. Uh, That's right. Obviously, the gods of cinematic scheduling have, have, have deemed this to be the case, but uh, you did obviously film these at the same time, High Rise, The Man in New Infinity, and Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Mm. Which one did you film first? I filmed High Rise first. Okay. Uh, in Northern Ireland. Yes. Then I filmed Infinity, and then I filmed Batman. The three very disparate roles as well. Although oh. I noticed one thing about both High Rise and The Man in New Infinity. In both movies, you play racket sports. I do, don't I? Mm. And I was never very good at racket sports. I, <laughs> I remember in my first film, The French of Tennis Woman, I also played um, real tennis, which mm. we play in Infinity. Yes. I remember the scene. We shot it, Infinity. We, I think we shot it in about half an hour. Um, <laughs> we were very tight for time that day. And uh, it's... It's great to do. I mean, I, I don't play sports anymore. I I ride horses and I um, sail boats and I ski the snow, but I don't knock balls about, except for my dog. <laughs> <laughs> is your dog called Balls, by any chance? Oh, no, he's not. No, he's, <laughs> okay. she is called she. Smudge. Smudge, okay. It's interesting because I, I don't actually know the rules of real tennis. Um, obviously, you play squash no. and high-rise real tennis in The Man of New Infinity, and as you mentioned, there's a French tennis woman as well. Do you know the rules, or having had half an hour to play the game on screen? I, I, I would have to say I don't. I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly complicated and involved, and I was given a brief sort of rundown before we played. And uh, But you can do a lot in the editing, I'm glad to say. <laughs> Uh, Tom Hiddleston looks like a fairly competitive squash player. He certainly is. He certainly is. He loves a bit of squash, Tom. <laughs> Fortunately, his character is supposed to be better than I am. And I, when I saw the scene, I thought, my God, Jeremy, you're so old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You can you can hammer that ball around. You, you, mm. you would put me to shame, I think. You would beat me. Well, that's really. kind of you. But let's, let's start with High Rise. Was your way into the movie through Jeremy Thomas, with whom you've worked in the past? Of it was. Jeremy and I had a conversation in Toronto the year before the film festival and and I said Jeremy you know I do a lot of very interesting and sort of diverse movies but I haven't made an English independent movie for a long time why is that and and he (laughs) said it's because you're too expensive and I said well that's rubbish you know because all of us will all you know will take the fee that the budget of the film can yes can offer but what is all actors like is good work interesting work yes and so a year later, he came and said, listen, I'm, I'm going to make this, this movie um, with Ben Wheatley. And I'd seen one of Ben's films and, and thought he was a very interesting director. J.G. Mm. Ballard, of course, is a writer who I've been interested in since David Cronenberg asked me to make Crash. And I, I rather sadly, looking back, I don't regret much in my life, but I sort of slightly regret having not said yes to that. Because mm. when I saw the movie, it was mm. just I was n- knocked away by it. 
and in fact, went st- I saw it in Hong Kong. I was filming there, and I went straight back in and saw the next showing of the film. I wow. liked it so much, and wow. I did regret not making it. So when when uh, High Rise came up, I thought, yeah, all right, let's let's have a go at this. It's an extraordinary film, and mm. Ben is an extraordinary m- movie maker. I think it will probably divide audiences. It's sort of cinematic mayhem. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston, of course, is wonderful in it, and Luke Evans. Yes. Both give tremendous performances. I think, I mean, it's a film that has, there have been efforts to make it for, I think, 10 or 12 years. I think maybe longer than different that. different scripts. Yeah. Jeremy Thomas, the producer, has always wanted to make it. It's been a, a, a favourite book of his. And uh, I'll be very interested to see how, how the public take to it. Indeed. Um, but before we talk a little bit more about that, I just want to ask a little bit more about Crash. Why did you turn it down? Uh, I turned it down because I'd been making a lot of films. I just, I, I'd made Dead Ringers playing the mutant twins. Yes. I played Klaus von Bühler, who was uh, accused of trying to poison his wife with um, insulin. Mm. And I thought, I'm playing an awful lot of weirdos. I must be very careful not to get myself up an alley. And so when David suggested Crash, I thought, maybe that's one too many... Of course, looking back, it wouldn't have been. But at the time, it just felt perhaps a misstep or rather another step down a particular direction. And I, I, I try to keep a diverse career. I mean, a, as you see by these movies that oh, are yeah. all coming out together. And, and as they're all coming out together, I'm, make, I, I'm doing a play, American play, Long Day's Journey Into Night. So I'm very happy with the diverse nature that my career has mm-hmm. it gives me this gives me sort of wider opportunities so perhaps it was the right choice i don't know <laughs> but uh, you I, say- I think the gen- in general you should probably always take the opportunity of working on a good script with a good director whatever the subject matter absolutely and um, which of course brings us back to high rise and uh, and anthony royal who i think out of the three characters we were talking about today alfred in uh, batman Superman, gh hardy in, uh, in the man of infinity and of course, High Rise is probably the closest to the weirdos you just described. Yes, I would say. Yes, although I, I don't think he sees himself like that. But I mean, he sees himself as a man who has created the perfect environment for living in society, and then sees it go wrong. There are, I, I think, parallels with you know the Thatcher way of thought about how life should be organised. Mm. And interestingly enough, as he's a a creator, he's an architect, as the building falls apart, he remains very calm, watches it as a social experiment and says, well, this is what evolution is all about. Let's see how how this building evolves. He is somewhat removed. I mean, he lives in the penthouse in the most extraordinary, uh, the most extraordinary large garden, roof garden, biggest I've ever seen, uh, with a wife who rides a horse around this garden. (laughs) He he is remarkably detached. But I've met a few architects, and they're all a bit odd. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Uh, Mention no names. You have to have a vision of life which is larger and more detached in a way from the man in the street in order to build these or or design these extraordinary buildings. Mm. But architects certainly have big egos. They're they're great visionaries. Mm. And I think because of that are slightly removed from the reality of life. And when the reality of life catches up with them, certainly as Royal, as an example, in, Mm. in High Rise, they step back and watch with amazement to see what their work has created. Absolutely. Uh, how immersive are you as an actor in terms of research? Did you uh, do a lot of research into architecture? Did you do a lot of research into mathematics? And indeed, how do you research Alfred in, in Batman v Superman? 
Well, in Batman with Alfred, I, I talked to Zack Snyder, our director, and, mm-hmm. and he said, listen, we're, we're doing it. Don't worry about old Alfreds. This is a new story. This is, this is Batman older. This is Batman slightly um, changed, soured by life. Mm-hmm. And we want your Alfred to be more of a an all-round military bodyguard come, butler come, assistant come, everything. I mean, the <laughs> sort of person you would die to have in a massive emergency. Somebody who can capable. do anything. Very yeah. capable. Mm. I was happy with that because I have an element of that in my life anyway. I mean, I can do a lot of things. I had a little bit of military training when I was uh, when I was at school, so I sort of know a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that makes sense. I mean, I've, I've known some very rich and powerful people and and they have people around them who are immensely capable. They may be able to serve the best martini, but they could also give you a karate blow to your neck, which would floor <laughs> you. Um, and in a way, that's Alfred. He differs from me, of course, because he can understand computer technology. <laughs> I was going to ask. Which uh, I didn't bother to re- research because I knew I would never get to the bottom of it. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy that I can turn on my computer, that I can get online, get my emails. And that's about it, really. <laughs> my son the other day said, you want me to put email on your, on your iPhone? I said, no. I, re- I know I really don't want that. I'm, I'm very happy. I get texts if I yeah. need them, and I can mm-hmm. call people and speak to them. I don't want anything else in my pocket. Um, <laughs> so, so that element of, of Alfred, I had to act. Yes, you're very wise. Uh, since we've been talking, I, my phone has buzzed in my pocket about ten times with emails, and yeah. there's a compulsion now. Like, what's happening? What's happening? I know it's terrible. And I was told that computers were going to make life easier for us, but they've just they've brought the office into our pocket. I mean, it's appalling. <laughs> I'm very glad when I turn my phone off and when I'm rehearsing at the moment the phone goes off at 10 and it goes on again at 6 and I look at the messages <laughs> and, and I, I stop being a slave to it. Yes, I should take a leaf out of your book. So obviously this is a very different version of, of Batman and Superman what's your take on the on these characters? Did you watch the Batman TV show when you were I watched up, it, yeah, when I was very young I remember the Batmobile and uh, lovely Michael Goff yes. playing uh, playing Alfred and I, yes, I sort of loved it but um, I'm not what you would call an aficionado I haven't spent <laughs> hours watching all of them. I watched a little bit of Zach's first one with Henry Cavill, the um, mm-hmm. Man of Steel, mm-hmm. just to get a, a flavour of what it was about and what they were up to. But no, it's it, it, it's not a genre that I would naturally go to. It's a genre, not just comic book movies, but blockbusters that, by and large, you've avoided in your career. I mean, obviously, you can think of Die Hard with a Vengeance, but by and large, yeah. you've given that sort of uh, that film a, a miss. Yes. I, I presume films have come your way in the past and you've said no. Um, yes, although I've just done another picture called Assassin's Creed, which mm-hmm. is, you know, similar sort of blockbuster genre. Mm-hmm. I have to say that purely selfishly as an actor, they're not quite as much fun. They take a long time to make. There are mm-hmm. a lot of special effects. Fortunately, I haven't ever yet been in the situation where I have to work on green screen and have, you know, electric nodes all over me so that they can make me something else when the film comes out. But I'm very old-fashioned. I like to look like I'm going to look, talk to somebody who is there, a 
about something that is well written and interesting and, and those tend to be you know sort of independent smaller budget films but mm-hmm. they're for me they're a lot more fun to make I mean yeah. I was very proud to make Batman because it's an iconic subject and, and in the hands of Zack Snyder who is a master at that sort of genre and who not only is a master but makes it very personal you feel you're working on a small film when you're doing a scene a particular scene with most of my scenes were with Bruce but nevertheless it all takes longer because everything it's a very much bigger production things sort of move slower because there's so many more people to move so those large films are not ones I would rush towards, although I'm very grateful to them. I'm very grateful, basically, that they give me a, a wider profile, yes. which as an actor you need if you want to do a film like High Rise or The Man Who Knew Infinity. You want to draw audiences who've maybe come across you in those blockbusters to see a film that they perhaps ordinarily wouldn't go and see mm. because you're in it. I mean, that's, that's the sort of mix. I've, also, of course, you earn better on these large films. Yes. And so, purely business-wise, it's nice to do one every now and again. Absolutely. Uh, can they be fun? Was Megan Die Hard with a Vengeance? They can be fun when yeah. you're actually working. I mean, I, I had a lot of fun w- with Ben, a man I admire enormously and mm. like very much, and, and he's a really good actor. The moments we're actually working together, that can be fun. But as far as spending time with your fellow actors, I mean, your fellow actors are probably not there. Um, you know, an awful lot of good actors in, in Batman. But I didn't meet any of them. I mean, we met on, on, on publicity junkets. By and large, yes. Not on the set. Absolutely. And let's talk about the man who knew Infinity, in which you play and the esteemed mathematician G.H. Hardy. How competent are you at mathematics? Did you have to... Were you uh, I got nowhere flummoxed? near the, sort of <laughs> the, the mathematics that G.H. Hardy was doing. I read... He's written a wonderful book, name of which, of course, escapes me. The Mathematician's Apology, I think it's called, which is really many of his lectures pulled together. And as you read it, what I learned from that, I didn't really get the mathematics, but what I learned was that mathematics is an art, or or pure mathematics is an art. It is a way of thought. It's sort of like it's a mixture between painting and philosophy, and it's something you can fly with and something that you get hooked in, hooked Mm. onto. For me, mathematics was purely two and two, four and how do I divide 72 by five and that sort of thing useful for life but no way was it the art that pure mathematics is and when I read G.H. Hardy's short book I, I said I see you can become passionate about this really passionate about this as he was mm. but to an outsider someone who wasn't an academic someone who wasn't a pure pure mathematician it's gobbledygook what what i learned my my research for the character was the way they were so impassioned about their subject and so bound up in it and so insular Mm. in a way so that when juliet comes across this young man ramanujan Mm. played in the film by dev patel and reads his notebooks he is just amazed this is like me finding a new shakespeare play (laughs) you know, that's never been discovered. I mean, it would be like finding the, oh, I don't know, the golden whatever, fleece. Yes. So he he invites this pretty illiterate Indian over to Cambridge, talking sort of 1912, just before 1913, just before the Great War, so that he can continue his extraordinary mathematics and prove it and and become, as as he now has done, one of the sort of five greatest pure mathematicians ever. 
That may sound a bit boring to the filmgoer, but what developed was the most delicate and extraordinary relationship between these two men, which the film describes, and, and which I think is quite heartbreaking. Hardy, who was fairly asexual, really, but he did go on later in life to have um, relationships with other men. Mm-hmm. So he was basically homosexual, but he wasn't aware of it. He wasn't, he'd never faced it. I mean, it's not like today when one wears one's sexuality proudly. This was a sort of rather shady area and, and something, if you weren't sure about your sexuality, you didn't, a lot of people anyway, didn't really examine deeply what yeah. it was. So you you see this relationship growing between these two men who have a shared passion, quite different ages, uh, in this time where England was going to war. And I think it's a very affecting movie, a very very warm movie. I'm very pleased with it. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't want to go into spoiler territory too much about the film, but um, there's very interesting meetings between uh, your character, Hardy, and Ramanujan, essentially where you can't look him in the eye, you, you, which seems to be a deliberate choice. To me well, yes, this was, I mean, I, I, I did research on, on Hardy and uh, a lot of people, um, I mean, Bertram Russell was a great friend, and a lot of people talked about or wrote about him. And I looked into that, and he was a very, very shy man who who uh, wasn't really able to communicate at all on an emotional level Mm. or on a normal level. He was bound up in himself and couldn't even bear to look at his reflection in a mirror. He would, they say, if he was staying in a hotel or whatever, he'd either take the mirror down or cover it with a towel. He didn't like to see himself. He was completely bound up in a sort of shyness and a life of academia. And I know those people. I've seen those people. But that's quite an endearing quality, I think. Mm, absolutely, it man. is. And, uh, and Jeremy, I will have to let you go uh, back to Bristol to <laughs> finish rehearsals. Thank you. <laughs> a long yes. day's journey tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeremy Irons. Thank Bless you. What a voice that man has. Extraordinary voice. And Tash, he's got a Tash at the moment because he's growing it for the, um, the Eugene O'Neill play he's doing in, at the Bristol Old Vic. Uh, a long day's journey in tonight. Eugene O'Neill Long which starts on March 23rd runs for five weeks in Bristol if you fancy popping along to Bristol wonderful city and you may even get a glimpse of Noel Edmonds who records Deal or No Deal there of course so that's definitely the reason most people go to Bristol yep yeah do you ever get that where you're like walking through a city and you know that someone famous is there like you know you know every time you go to New York you just hope to see Lee Child or Michael Stipe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you maybe hang us out where they live for a while and a couple maybe, of days yeah maybe bribe the doorman to let you you know watch them sleep you ever get that no no, no. time for reviews now <laughs> uh, let's start with high rise you no, okay. no, not recently anyway. Uh, let's start with High Rise, uh, which is, of course, Ben Whitney's adaptation of the 1975 J.G. Ballard novel uh, about, uh, well, High Rise in London, uh, the inhabitants of which slowly go mad over mm. over a period of, of some days and weeks. Uh, All-star cast in this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is unusual for ben, for ben Wheatley. How does this one measure up, Phil? Oh, well... Really well. Um, is it six I, inches? Is it, is it six feet? How big is this high rise? It's six. Yeah, it's about sixty feet tall. It's huge. Lord. Huge. Um, it's. Can a building be that big without falling over? I'm not so sure. I don't know. It looks like it should because it's kind of a. It's kind of a beaky, eagerly, like a sort of a. <laughs> Using architectural terms now. <laughs> beaky, eagerly thing with a sort of protruding top bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying more than 60 feet. We know it's more than 25 feet. It's bigger floors. than it's big. Yeah. It's very big. It's set. It's JG Ballard has been adapted on the big screen three times um, by such different filmmakers. Um, obviously, David Cronenberg did the controversial crash. Yep. Uh, Steven Spielberg with Empire of the Sun. Now, I've read the book and it's it's a little different to what Spielberg brought to the screen. Mm. Um, but Spielberg found Spielberg elements in it. But I, I really feel like this is the most J.G. Ballardian is the word I've discovered uh, adaptation we've had so far. And, and what it is that makes him so defy most adaptations is this is this kind of world he creates. It's not really plot-driven. It's not even really character-driven. It's just this kind of world that you're invited into that you kind of want to find the exit from, but you're trapped, and it's a, it's a, it's a sense of um, kind of enclosure. And uh, it, what's specific, uh, particularly interesting is that it was designed, it was written in 1975 as a futuristic world, and now, obviously, Ben Wheatley's making it as a kind of a period future kind of dystopia um and it still has this sort of biting satirical element the idea that the the top floors are are, are, are kind of inhabited by the wealthier aspects of society but then as soon as you shut the lights off and there's a power cut uh, tom hiddleston's dr robert lang who's the sort of epitome of the genteel middle class finds that everything goes native uh, it's like lord of the flies kind of in a massive tower block and uh, I just really kind of came out a little disorientated but mm. in a really good way yeah. um, it isn't always easy to watch some of the stuff that goes on within the building um, by the end of it it sort of loops back it starts off at the end and kind of loops back um, it's just this kind of collapse of society and uh, the return to nature and I think Ben Wheatley does a phenomenal job kind of bringing this into a modern context and making you think that actually things haven't changed all that much socially um, yeah, really liked it. Yeah, I, I agree. It is. It will seriously mess with your head. Um, and, and it's not, in, in many ways, it's not a sort of traditional story structure. I mean, obviously, yes, it starts at the end and, and loops backwards, as you say, but it, it also just doesn't explain a lot of what's going on. Things just happen and you just kind of survive them as best you can, frankly. Yeah. Um, but that kind of works to the disorienting aspect that you mentioned and just the sheer kind of weirdness um, of the film. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, actually. Really, really disturbing. Really gets under your skin. It genuinely feels extremely of the moment, especially after yesterday's budget. Um, so, you know, it, it couldn't be more timely, really. It, it feels like it's, it's all the stuff that we're dealing with today, from demagogues to, you know, to social unrest, to social injustice, to... You know, the 1% getting richer and richer and, and more isolated at the top. So, um, yeah, frightening, frightening stuff. To try and set the film in a little bit more context, I mean, Jeremy Thomas, the producer of this, has been trying to make this movie for about 20 years. Yeah. And in that time, he's had more conventional action movie treatments of this uh, uh, book. Because the basic plot of high-rise, such as there is, is that there is a high-rise, uh, something happens in the high-rise, and the people start devolving. That's essentially what they what, what happens. They start they they start regressing, they, they become a little bit more primal, and, uh, and you have a couple of the characters who then try and work their way up the building. Uh, everything's contained and internalised, so rather than bursting out, or there's, you know, there's, it almost feels like there's an infection in a way, in the air. Mm-hmm. That's, that's spreading through the uh, the um, 
the high rise and making everyone a little bit insane. And a couple of characters trying to fight their way to the top to to have it out with the the god of, of it all, the architect himself, Anthony Royal, played of course by Jeremy Irons. And uh, and I think what Ben Wheatley and his uh, partner Amy Jump, who uh, wrote the screenplay uh, here, have done, is that they have moved away from that sort of very die-hardy action thriller treatment, which you could, which a clothier director could have applied to this this uh, material, and they've moved it much more into the the realms of the surreal, the darkly comic. Uh, there are images here. I mean, you you both have focused on the fact that it's a very very dark film and it is a very dark film but it's also a very very freewheeling comedic film as well which is very much in keeping with uh, a lot of Ben Wheatley's work and it made me laugh a lot there are images in here uh, images and lines BAFTA him of course something we discussed (laughs) in the live podcast with with Ben Wheatley where uh, literally a BAFTA is used as an attempted murder weapon in this movie they're just baffling and off kilter and uh, upsetting but funny and you know it, it's it's a movie that will stay with you uh, I think as you said for a long long time afterwards um, I think it's fantastic of course I would I was on set but beyond that I think that it's uh, it's just a really really well put together movie of a, of a virtually unfilmable book because there's so much internalised action in the Ballard novel um, and I think Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump have done a great job of putting that uh, of taking that out and somehow putting it on the big screen and they're, they're served of course by a tremendous cast Yeah, uh, Tom Hiddleston at the centre with a number of gift-worthy moments as Dr. Robert Lang, who is this very cool and detached customer. Uh, he's not your your standard action hero because it's not a standard action movie. But he's someone who's very much on the outside observing the chaos as it begins to unfold. He's very, very good. Mm. For me, the MVP, though, is Luke Evans, who plays a documentary filmmaker called Richard Wilder and Wilder by Name, Wilder by Nature. And he plays him as a sort of Oliver Reed-esque 1970s Welsh wild man who... Ends the movie covered in blood. Not all of it is, but you. But the way he plays him, you almost feel that he's covered in blood right from the off. <laughs> he's just a, a boor and a braggart and someone who uses his fists first. It's a tremendous performance um, from him, and it's a great performance all the way through. Elizabeth Moss, Sienna Miller, Jeremy Irons is very, very good, and of course, there's Ben Wheatley's sort of travelling rep company of people like Tony Paul Way and Rhys Shearsmith, who are also very, very good as well. Enzo Gelenti, people like that. But, yeah, for me, uh, Luke Evans is a real revelation in this movie. It did remind me a little bit of, in a weird way, of Shivers, talking about the Cronenberg Cronenberg element. Um, You can see why Cronenberg and Wheatley are both interested in Ballard, certainly. Uh, Spielberg's less obvious. Um, But they're just the mood and the icky, sticky atmosphere of this film. It does, it lingers with you. I saw it last year and it's still kind of, it's still there. Still sort of rattling around in your mind. Mm. Creates something that's hard to shake and with a lot of help from Clint Mansell's score I would say yep. and it's got an incredible one of the musical cues of the year so far which is um, Portishead covering SOS by ABBA <laughs> which is something you'd never thought you'd, you'd hear but works perfectly in this yeah. um, I think Ben Wheatley might be one to add to that he's not made a bad film on that list of five actually this is his fifth film and there you go. I think that so far Down Terrace Kill List Sightseers Field in England uh, and now this and they're not to everyone's taste but I think he's one of the most original interesting filmmakers we've thrown up in a long long time Yeah, I think he's absolutely fantastic 
Did we say we've given it four stars? We were about to. We're about we're, to. We're about With to. With the proviso and the caveat that it won't be to everyone's taste. It won't be to everyone's taste, and it will be a little bit divisive, and it is It is a nightmarish uh, hellscape at many, <laughs> many times. But I don't just mean that in terms of the images that are, that are put on the screen. Um, there are choices made throughout the movie that deliberately disorient you as the viewer. So there are scenes where... It, characters appear to be in different places at the same time. So the time frame's never quite uh, nailed down or delineated properly. And it just, it, it, the whole thing, at, 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 right from the off, actually, when you have this incredible scene with, um, I won't give it anything away, but you have this incredible reveal with Reese Shearsmith, who plays a dentist, right at the beginning of the movie, and you're just kind of going, oh, okay, this is, this is not your usual fare uh, it's it's very very good and it's very very bold and for a low budget British film I've been really intrigued to see how everywhere it is it's just everywhere at the moment and they've been doing lots of you know, publicity stuff for it and uh, which is uh, really really interesting they're really really going all out I think to try and get people to see it before people before the word gets out there that's a bit more weird than you might expect <laughs> Uh, but four stars uh, for High Rise uh, fantastic stuff and uh, speaking of movies about people slowly going mad inside buildings uh, <laughs> it is 10 Cloverfield Lane which is or is not a pseudo sequel to uh, Cloverfield J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves Cloverfield which came out in 2008 that was a giant monster movie about a big old thingy stomping all over buildings yeah. um, this isn't that no, it isn't. I mean, you, it's one of these things where you wonder if the title of the movie is a spoiler in some way that it, and maybe it is. You could discuss that after you've seen it. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's it, yeah. it starts off as a very very contained story. We start off with Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Michelle clearly having an extremely bad day, walking out of her apartment, getting into her car, driving, and she drives away and uh, and her car then is involved in an accident. We don't see exactly what happens. We know it's been an accident. She loses consciousness. This is all pretty much pre- around the credits. Uh, but she wakes up uh, with an injured leg that's chained to a pipe on a wall uh, in a sort of, you know, bare block uh, room. No idea how she got there. And John Goodman's character, Howard, comes in and he claims that basically he's just saved her life. Um, that not only was she, you know, she, the car crashed, she needed medical attention, but he found her and brought her to his bunker for safety because the whole world outside is basically gone. Everything is gone. There's something in the air. He doesn't know what. People are dead. No point in leaving the bunker. Now, she entirely sensibly and understandably and unlike everybody else in most of these films ever, doesn't immediately believe him. Um, and starts trying to push the limits and, and figure out, is he telling the truth or not? So there's a thick seam of paranoia in this. Um, there, she's also in this bunker that it's not just the two of them. There's a third person in the bunker. Um, shit, I can't find his name. Here we go. She's also in this bunker with a, a third inhabitant um, who's Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr. And he is uh, a guy who helped Goodman build all of this. Goodman's ex-military. He, he's a paranoid dude. He built this bunker for safety. Um, Emmett helped him, and that, therefore he came running when things started to go south outside. So Emmett does entirely believe that there is something wrong outside, that there is a reason to be scared, that there is a reason to, to cower in there. So it's it's a really slow-boiling uh, film. It has some seriously terrifying moments. And I don't want to say too much about where it goes to, because I think the less you know about plot in this case... Yeah. 
frankly, the better. I thought the, the 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 ending of the film actually was was pretty satisfying. The very end, there was there was a bit where I was like, really, and then it kind of got me back on board. I thought the end was quite cool. Um, but I thought Mary Elizabeth Winstead was was absolutely fantastic, and mm. John Goodman is astonishing. I mean, he. We've seen him be scary, obviously, many times. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm thinking particularly of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as the as the sort of cyclops. But um, but I think this is his most complete bad character ever. I thought he was really astonishing. Hmm, interesting. Um, you weren't so you weren't so on it. No, I think he's very good. I, I like the movie a lot. It's really tricky. I really want to do a spoiler special in this. <laughs> But there's no one coming to talk about it, and it would be just be us going, well, what do you think of the ending? Um, <laughs> for like 10 minutes. Uh, I like the movie a lot. I kind of feel it lost me a little bit with the ending, but I have to say that after the, all the build-up, yeah. nothing would have nothing would have been nothing would have delivered, yeah. I, I think. And I've also read a lot of... Um, uh, who was it? Was it Chris Tapley, I think? Uh, and Variety may have uh, mentioned the word Oscar in relation to John Goodman. I think that would be ridiculous. Um, he's very, very good in the movie, but he's he's always very good mm-hmm. in everything. Um, and I'm not entirely sure this is an Oscar-worthy performance. Can you imagine, though, a brilliant actor who's done incredible, incredible work with the Coen brothers, and you're going, you go to John Goodman's house one day, and you can see an Oscar on the shelf, and you go, hey, oh, you won an Oscar, John, that's great. Well, yeah, what did you win it for? Uh, Big Lebowski? And he goes, no. <laughs> oh, um, Barton Fink? Barton Fink? <laughs> no. Arachnophobia? You were great in that film. <laughs> no, no, no. What did you get it for? Ten Cloverfield Lane. Ah, okay. It doesn't quite feel. You know what I mean? I mean and I'm, it's yeah. weird because I'm, you know, it feels really snobbish. But I'm, I'm all for the Academy and the Oscars not being snobbish and rewarding genre films. But I just, this doesn't feel like an Oscar performance to me. But he's no, very, very good. I, I would 100 percent agree. It doesn't feel like an Oscar performance. I do think it's fantastic though. And actually, it's probably not quite as good as his bad guy in, in Barton Fink. Now I think about it. But, <laughs> You're talking about terrifying. Woo. Yeah, but it's it's still a great great performance by him. And, oh yeah, it's and very I, good. I do love it. And. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's scary. If you if you fancy a scary movie, this is this is good. Um, and yeah, as I say, Winston is also terrific. So full marks to her. I mean, you know, <laughs> Jeff Wells doesn't agree. Well, <laughs> Jeff Wells not agreeing is a badge of honor for any sensible human being. Um, There's an amazing moment this week uh, with Jeff Wells, who's probably the world's worst human being. Uh, no, he's getting strong competition in the states at the moment. Uh, let's be fair, uh, Jeff Wells. This is really weird as well because he tweeted Mary Elizabeth Winstead directly to criticise her performance, and then got all pious when she tweeted him back and claimed that she had leapt into the debate. No, this is what this is how Twitter works, Jeffrey. If you tweet someone directly, that's inviting you're inviting yourself into their world, so it, they're perfectly well placed to have a go at you. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, because he basically thinks that she's overacting and and not real in this movie and uh, he tweeted her words to that effect to which she tweeted back uh, was I also too fat for you in this movie uh, please let me know <laughs> with a little smiley face which absolutely nailed him I think but yeah she's very very good John Goodman's very good this is a this is a the debut of Dan Trachtenberg who's done a couple of short films in the past and I think uh, he he does a he does a lot here to generate attention with uh, mm-hmm. there's a there's with uh, very little plot development uh, if you know what I mean it's 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 all about the tension all about the interplay between these three characters and it's really tricky because I really want to talk about the uh, the wider stuff as well but uh, you know and, uh, yeah we how, shouldn't how it fits into uh, a franchise if indeed it does fit into a franchise but I will say the decision to talk, call this film Ten Cloverfield Lane has really paid off in terms of generating. Um, Lots of expectation and interest in the film. Uh, If this movie, and if you believe the rumours that this movie wasn't in any way connected to anything, uh, that it was just a film called The Cellar, 
previously and was sitting on a shelf gathering dust and then someone had a bright idea to go, why don't we just maybe do some stuff and then call it, put the word Cloverfield in the title and put it out there. Now it's made $25 million since opening weekend. Everyone's talking about it. It's launched Dan Trachtenberg, quite rightly. John Goodman is being talked about as an Oscar contender very early in the day. And that wouldn't have happened if this movie had just simply been called The Cellar. True. And so, you know, so that's very, very interesting. And that's why I want to do a spoiler special, but we don't have time, sadly, to do it. But yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, me too. We gave it four stars. Four stars. So. Four stars. Okie dokie. Uh, right, because we talked about those two in such uh, detail, because they are the films of the week, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Also out this week, uh, we have Joseph Fiennes and Tom Felton in uh, the religious drama Risen, which we gave three stars to, which, as we always say on the Emperor podcast, is a recommendation. And also out this week is Bill Murray in Rock the Casbah, a long-awaited return to comedy. Unfortunately, it is an absolute stinker. Barry Levinson, another director who has gone off the rails, mm. I would say, sadly. Why well, does it always happen? One star for Rock the Casbah. And we don't have a review for it but this week, but there's also a horror film out called The Boy, starring Lauren Cohen from The Walking Dead. And... Uh, Everything I know and seen about this film, which has been out in the States for for a while, it is bonkers. It's about a, a woman who uh, is employed as a babysitter uh, in a dark, creepy house. When she gets there, she is told, essentially, that she has to look after a doll, a, hu- a really creepy, weird porcelain doll that appears to have powers of paranormal thingy. Uh, activity type thing <laughs> paranormal so, thingy par- paranormal thingy so uh, yeah so apparently demented with a, with a bonkers bonkers twist so uh, maybe check that one out if you if you fancy horror films uh, right and that is it for this week's uh, Empire Podcast uh, join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by I don't know I don't know who we're going to be joined by they're still um, not confirmed are they no I don't know. But we're no. trying to we, obviously we're trying to make a Batman uh Free Superman Dawn of Justice uh spoiler special happen. So we may have guests for that, but I wouldn't want to get anyone's hopes up. But uh fingers crossed that we'll be making that happen and you'll be able to hear that uh after the film's open. Uh which is next week. My <gasps> word. March twenty fifth is upon us. Oh and of course Daredevil opens uh we how we not mention that Daredevil season two on Netflix Friday. We may have a spoiler special for that at some point down the line as well, but obviously we need time to watch all 13 episodes and then digest them. Uh, but I think Batman v Superman is going to take precedence over that one uh, for the time being. Uh, but as in terms of next week's guest, I don't have a bloody clue who it's going to be. So come back here next week right, when I'll be right. interviewing Helen O'Hara and Phil Dissembly right. about what they've seen. Actually, I'm not um, available. You're not available, of course not. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get a can of Coke for 60p from the vending machine I can see from my seat in the pod booth. And you know what? I'm going to get a hundred of them. Yeah. Stockpile them. You stockpile those. The, the, uh, the sugar apocalypse is coming. <laughs> John Goodman. Here. You're building your yeah. bunker now. Pick a sugary side now. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. <laughs>